and they never once called me, visited me, or wrote to me. They only paid for my school to board me, and everything else was literally neglected. And unfortunately, it cemented the fact that I was truly never wanted in the first place. And that just does something to the psyche of a child, you know. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show is Tezita. She called me from Sacramento, California, but she tells a harrowing story that originates in Ethiopia. Tezita's adopted family had many other international adoptees, but she was singled out for solitary confinement. She was sent back to her homeland, where she thrived mentally in a boarding school away from her adopters. When she returned, she witnessed more abuse and decided she'd had enough. Kicked out of the family, she was forced to thrive independently, relying on her communities in faith and adoption. This is Tezita's journey. When I asked Tezita to tell me about her adoption and life in her family, she told me that in 1996, she was adopted at six years old from Ethiopia. So she was well aware that her story started years before coming to the United States. To gather her thoughts, Tiz, as she's sometimes called, wrote down part of her story about the circumstances for her adoption. How I ended up in the orphanage that I was in um, before my parents adopted me um, is a mystery to me. Um, those who know the truth are refusing to speak. From what little information I've dug up, my orphanhood is shrouded in corruption, child trafficking, abuse, and cover-ups. All I know is that I should have never become an orphan. However, I am now. In a split second, my life was completely turned upside down. I don't have any memories of my dear parents, my biological parents, that is. And one day, I lost my entire lineage. I lost my parents, my brothers, my sisters. If I had any, my grandparents, my aunts, uncles, nieces, and nephews, all of them lost the history. And so that is the first step of my orphanhood that I vividly remember at the orphanage. Do you recall the orphanage at all? Can you tell me a little bit about life in the orphanage? I didn't stay in the orphanage for so long. There's just like very small memories in my head being raised by two parents, which I presume were my biological mom and dad. But I was so young, I don't remember it much. But then I remember being transferred into this orphanage. And then from there, it was basically being adopted. And so all I know is just being very, feeling very sad and lonely and wanting this woman that I was with all of a sudden disappeared from my life, which I presume was my biological mother. And I just remember wanting her back, wanting her to come into my life. And but at the orphanage itself, there's not much memory there other than I want this woman that used to raise me to return back to me. Tiz remembers some of the images of caregivers at the orphanage, nuns in the form of Mother Teresa, but she doesn't remember their faces. What she does remember are the things that were happening to her and around her. So I remember sitting 
at the door, gazing out into the, the distant farmlands in Ethiopia and hoping one of the women walking out and about was my mother. And although I never knew what she looked like, I knew that she knew what I looked like because a mother knows what her child looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and days would turn into months, months into years, just waiting for this woman that I used to, you know, play with, come and get me. And so that's just what I remember. But I just remember being a very sad child because apparently this relationship that I had with these two men and women was suddenly taken away and I was put in an environment that I was completely unfamiliar with. Do you recall in this environment with this man and woman, the other children, do you recall the feeling of siblings around you at all? No, I don't remember that. I do remember the, a village and a lot of people, a lot of kids around. But whether they were related to me or not, I will never know. Six-year-old Tezita can remember a mother and father figure in her life. She has recollections of the village she started to grow up in and other children outside with her, possibly some of her siblings. Then everything changed. Tiz sad and lonely, was in an orphanage by herself. But her life changed in another dramatic way as well. Uh, While I was in Ethiopia, I was diagnosed with um, polio. And um, some say that I contracted it through the vaccine. And so I was not able to walk. But I do remember walking when I was very little. And I, I remember running around. So something happened between the time I was adopted in in that orphanage that I contracted polio and I stopped walking. And so um, the women that would adopt me, the white women that would later on adopt me, she had told me, this adopted mother of mine, had told me that when I was in that orphanage, she used to care for me, take me to the hospital because I had contracted polio and I was very, very sick and I was on the verge of dying. And so as a result of that, them also being Christian, she said that God told her to adopt me and another young girl who is my older sister that I'll go into details for later on. Um, we were adopted. And so she came into my life and I didn't stay in the orphanage for too long. I was taken into um, a holding center where uh, kids who are being adopted in Ethiopia are put into. And that's where I met my adopted sister, my older adopted sister, who, by the way, is also disabled in that she only has one arm. Her left arm was Mm -hmm. um, amputated in a fire accident. And so her and I were adopted together, and then we came to the United States and where we grew up basically for the rest of our life after that Mm -hmm. with um, few interruptions in between. When When you say few interruptions in between, what does that mean? That means that um, after I was adopted and came to the U.S. and stayed about two years here, I went back to Ethiopia, and I had gone there to live and study in a boarding school for about six years until I came back to the U.S. again. So Tiz and this other young girl were adopted into sisterhood in the United States. I asked her what she remembered about when she was adopted. I remember the airplane ride. And I remember the surprise in seeing a white person for the first time in my life because I had never seen a person that looked so drastically different than us Ethiopians. 
So those are the two very vivid memories in my head because I remember the adoptive mother of mine giving me a bracelet and the kids telling me to throw it away because, you know, she was a witch and because, you know, they associate, <laughs> I know this is bad to say, but <laughs> they associated at the time being ignorant and stuff um, that white people pretty much, you know, witches and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I remember throwing it away and being really scared of her because she just looked so different from us. And so that's all I remember. And the airplane ride and being terrified of being up in the air and just coming into a, a completely different environment. Those are the only things I remember. Wow, that that sounds incredibly scary. You, I mean, yeah. you know, we think of children being transported into another home, another environment. but I. It didn't really occur to me before that the idea of airplane flight could be petrifying. And as you've said, the notion that you would come to another country, meet someone who doesn't look like you, but not only doesn't look like you, you've never, ever seen anybody ever who ever looked like this person. I mean, that must have been crazy for a six-year-old. Absolutely. Absolutely, completely the opposite of African person, because most Ethiopians, you know, are are rural people. You know, eighty percent of Ethiopians are farmers, and so that's the life I grew up in. And so we don't have any connection to the outside world. And so when you meet somebody that that looks so drastically different from you, and especially when that physical appearance of the person is associated with being witches, that that terrifies a child. You know, to the point where you can convince a child to throw away the bracelet gift that was given to you because, well, it came from witches and we don't take things from witches. Just like most other global nations, many different languages are spoken in Ethiopia. Tiz and her sister originate from two different tribes within the nation. Tiz is from the northern tribe. Her sister is from the southern tribe. When she first arrived at the orphanage, of course, she spoke her tribal language. All of the kids in the orphanage spoke their respective languages. Apparently, there was one woman in Ethiopia who worked with the orphanage to help get children adopted out. I met her back in 2013, I believe. And she came up to me and she said, Tizita, do you still speak your tribal language? Which is Tigrayna. She asked me if I still speak it. And I said, no, I don't speak it. I've never spoken it. And she said, yes, you used to speak it. In fact, when you came to our orphanage, that was the only language you spoke. And I thought that was very interesting because I didn't, never knew what tribe I was from. All I knew was I was Ethiopian, but I never knew what tribe I was from. And this is um, a conversation we can get into, into all the lies my adopted mother and adopted parents have told me. And so it was, although it was on my birth certificate, what tribe I was born into, it was shocking to me to learn through this lady who had run the orphanage that I grew up in, that I spoke that language. My older sister was also adopted, the one with the one arm. She was from the southern tribe, and she also spoke her language. But by the time we got into the orphanage, her and I have for completely forgotten our language, and we just spoke Amharic, which is the national language of Ethiopia. You each yeah. had your own native tribal language that you were speaking, and then... When you got to the orphanage, you ended up adopting the national language. Wow. Yes. 
And then yeah, perfectly to say it. Wow. And then you move to the United States and you have to learn yet another language. Yes. From people who are witches. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I make jokes. I this is I I, I jest, but this is an incredible amount of stress on a child. Yes. You've you've got people whom you're associated with attached to in your village, in your home, ripped from them. You've got people whom you're now placed with at the orphanage. You're looking longingly out into the distance, hoping that somebody who knows you will come for you, and you're speaking a new language. You're then taken, put in this thing that suddenly shoots up into the air, and you're on it forever. You got to be petrified, and you land in a, and you the thing lands in a new country with people don't, that don't look like you at all, and there's a new language. I mean, that is a lot. Absolutely, to bear as a six-year-old, especially yes. Tizita is continually ripped from everything that she knows and moved into an entirely new living situation at six years old. She's transitioned to the United States, living with a family she doesn't know in Davis, California, receiving things that are intended to be gifts that invoke terror, and she and her sister don't speak the language. I asked her about her memories of that time and how she learned to adjust. The first time coming to the U.S., I remember being scared of everything. Um, in my bedroom, there used to be this huge teddy bear. And I would scream bloody murder because I wanted it out of my bedroom because you don't see fluffy toys like that. It just looked like an animal. I used to scream that it's going to eat me and my language. My parents could not communicate with me to figure out why it is I'm screaming. There was also a huge um, toy of a parrot. I also wanted that out of my bedroom because I screamed. And I couldn't communicate with my older sister who was also adopted because she also spoke her tribal language at the time. And so communication between all three of us, my adoptive parents, me, and my older sister, was like complete, complete chaos. And so nobody was understanding anybody. And um, it's just the fear of learning to use the toilet, um, learning to wash, and water coming out of uh, uh, just magic things, basically. You turn on something and water just comes out of it rather than, you know, in a bucket, pouring it over yourself with a cup. The food was very foreign to me. Um, the language was very difficult to understand. I didn't know who the people were that adopted me. Because um, how do you explain to a child that you're being adopted, especially in a language where the word adoption does not exist? All you're telling them is, okay, these are the people that you're going to be living with. And you're like, who are these people? I've never seen people that look like them. You're taking me to a land that I am not familiar with. It was just a huge cultural shock for me. And I'm a very sensitive person. I'm a very empath person, and I feel very heavily. So everything just hurt me a lot more than I would suppose other people would have been. At six years old, Tiz would normally be going into kindergarten or first grade. 
I tried to imagine what it must have been like for this scared little girl to be taken to a new school, dropped off with a lunch kit with foreign foods in it, and left with strange new adults and children that didn't look like her. I asked her if she remembered her experiences in school. No, because um, my adoptive parents did not allow us to go to school. We were homeschooled, um, quote-unquote homeschooled, but we really were not. Um, this is where basically the abuse starts happening. It was, I grew up in a very toxic, unhealthy, psychologically and emotionally abusive household. I was not adopted into a good family whatsoever. And so immediately the abuse started happening, isolation. So immediately when I came, I do not know what the problem was with my adoptive mother, but she basically was the most the abusive person in our family. She ruled with an iron fist. It was either her way or the highway. And immediately I was put into the bathroom and basically locked up in the bathroom and fed basically one piece of bread and one apple for the two years that I lived with them before returning back to Ethiopia and was given homework to do. Basically, she just threw the books at us and said, Okay, do the work. No assistance, no questions be asked. You had to just figure it out on yourself. So that's basically how I lived for the two years that I stayed with them, was basically being locked up in the bathroom. That is unbelievable. I mean, yeah. unfathomable. Yeah. I mean, it was so bad. I remember vividly one time being so hungry stealing an entire pack of gum and eating it because I had not been fed for three days because she had completely forgotten about me. And that was to be a pattern that she followed for many years. Mm. My gosh, I'm so sorry. That sounds absolutely mm -hmm. awful. Mm -hmm. So yeah. for clarity, yeah. Did you live in the bathroom? Like it wasn't that you was it that you were in there in the day and then you went to the bedroom to sleep at night? Tell me more clearly how this worked. Yeah, you could say basically I lived in the bathroom. She changed the lock and the door from inside out so that I couldn't get out. And um due to severe, I mean severe neglect. I and the traumas that I just suffered, I used to pee a lot because this is what happens to children that are neglected and suffer trauma. And as a form of punishment, she will actually take a towel, wet the towel, put it in a bathtub, and tell me to sleep in the bathtub. Um, that was her form of punishment, and she would leave the windows open so that my body literally shivered in the night with absolutely no blankets or will force me to sleep in my leg braces. Um, but yeah, so I ate, did my homework, slept in the bathroom. There were three other kids adopted from Ethiopia and already in the house when Tiz and her sister arrived, five children in total. The other children were not locked away. They had full access to the house and were fed. At that moment in time, Tezita, the sensitive, scared, crying little girl, was singled out for abuse and neglect. Trapped in the bathroom all day, Tiz was miserable. She stared at the walls. She stared at pages and pages of homework that were tossed into the bathroom for her to complete. 
They were the keys to her release. When the pages were complete, she could leave the bathroom. But if she needed help understanding mathematical equations, which most children do, then how could she be expected to complete the homework without help? It became a cycle of solitary confinement and mental torture. Tiz said the whole situation left her illiterate as a child. I asked her how the heck she got out of that two-year imprisonment. She said one day the woman just opened up the bathroom door and asked if she wanted to return to Ethiopia. Tizita knew enough to say yes, absolutely. Anything was better than what she was enduring in that bathroom. Moving very quickly, the woman had Tiz sent back to Ethiopia where she spent six and a half years at a Christian boarding school. She was too old to return to the orphanage. Tiz was by herself again. I asked what it was like to be away from the woman in a new school in her home country with a fresh start. I loved my time there. I would say that was one of the best things that happened to my life. But unfortunately, her neglect for me still carried on across the ocean. It's almost like I became an orphan for the second time. In the six and a half years that I lived there, um, I wore the exact same clothes every single day. I would sue and re-sue my clothes because I outgrew them and they tore a lot. And since I had no form of transportation, like a wheelchair, I would scoot around on chairs, like throughout the dorm rooms. My gracious friends would carry me on their backs to and fro my, from my classes. And I didn't even have like the basic necessities that students were expected to have. I didn't have any of the required textbooks, notebooks, pens, pencils. I didn't have feminine care. I didn't have toiletries like shampoo, hair products, no toilet paper. I often used leaves or paper to wipe. No toothpaste, toothbrush. Like I said, I became an orphan for the second time. Wow. So she was responsible for providing for you, but it was nothing but neglect from a distance still. Yeah. I often survived by begging the other students who barely had anything themselves. I mean, it was absolutely shameful that I, who had wealthy parents living in the wealthiest land on earth, had no choice but to beg poor students in Ethiopia who had poor parents themselves who barely had anything. But I was desperate, you know. I had no way of reaching out to my adoptive parents back in America. Right. I had no money to call for Postage. I didn't have postage stamps for letters, or I had no money f to call the number. And they never once called me, visited me, or wrote to me. They only paid for my school to board me, and everything else was literally neglected. And unfortunately, it cemented the fact that I was truly never wanted in the first place. And that just does something to the psyche of a child, you know. Mm -hmm. When you're promised, when a second family comes to you promising to be the mother you never had, the father you never had, and then to turn back on their words is very, very emotionally damaging to a person. What did you think? What kinds of thoughts crossed your mind? It cemented the fact that I was truly never wanted. I, all I knew was neglect. I knew that since I was a child because my biological parents had left me, and although they could have had good intentions for why they gave me up. 
but to a child that's still neglect. The child doesn't doesn't care about your reasoning for why you gave them up. They just know that you gave them up, and that hurts. And so when another family comes up promising to be to take their place, so you you have like almost a hope in a second family, right? And when they don't deliver, it destroys you as a human being. Um, and it just affirms in the child's psyche, okay, my biological parents didn't want me, my adoptive parents don't want me. And it's like, and then you look into inwards. You say, what is the problem with me? I often blamed it on my disability. I used to say maybe it's because I'm in a wheelchair. That's why they don't want me. Maybe I'm disabled. But it won't be later until later in my life that I realized that the problems with people is themselves and not you necessarily. Tiz is at a boarding school with no resources. She's begging other students for necessities. She's sewing and re-sewing her clothes to extend their life. Under those strenuous circumstances, most students would struggle to make the grade. I asked Tiz how she did in school. She shared that she got way more than an academic education while she was away. Um, I was an excellent student. I was an excellent A student. How'd you do that? I think because somebody cared. Somebody cared enough to let me know that I can do it. Somebody believed in me. The teachers? Yes. And my friends. And my friends. Although I did not have, like, the basic necessities um, for life at the boarding school, I I still had a blast. I mean, I built friendships that would last a lifetime. I was adored by many people, my professors, classmates, my roommates. I experienced love like never before. Um, I would say I learned so much there. I matured and grew into the person that I am in today. Um, I learned how to stand up for myself, advocate for myself. I was taught about my self-worth. I laughed a lot. I cried a lot. I loved a lot. Um, But through it all, I was surrounded by people who could not get enough of me. And that was so good for my self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, because for a girl who only knew rejections and neglect, to be loved like that felt really good. And I forgot just how hard my circumstances were because of the immense love that surrounded me. Um, so staying there was so, so good for my self-esteem, basically. Around 15 years old, Tezita was ready to return to the U.S. Unknown to Tiz, because her family didn't communicate with her at all while she was away, her adopted sister was also returned to Ethiopia. She had agreed to work at a Christian missionary school for two years. When her sister told their adoptive parents that she wanted to return to the U.S., they said no. Unbeknownst to the children, their adopted parents' plan was to return all of the children to their native Ethiopia permanently. Their parents tried hard to make sure the children could not return. But let's just say my older sister, she went to the American embassy because my adoptive mom had destroyed some information and legal information of hers to prevent her from coming to the U.S. So my sister went to the embassy to the American embassy in Ethiopia and asked them if they can help her returning back to the U.S. And they said, sure, we will help you that. And she told them, I also have another sister that lives in Ethiopia. Can you guys try to find her? I don't know where she is in Ethiopia. All I know is that she's here. 
and our adoptive parents have refused to tell us where she is. And so that's when a worker at the American Embassy came to find me. And he said to me, you know, Tuzita, are you aware that your sister, your older sister, is in Ethiopia? And I said, no, my adoptive parents don't talk to me at all. So I don't know what is going on with my family or anything. He says, well, she is. And it was very difficult to get her out of the country because so he said, basically, you guys were trafficked back into the land, into Ethiopia. You guys were not allowed to return back, and your parents returned you back, which is illegal to do. Wow. And so he said, yeah. And so he said, I've been trying to find you. He said, I tried to work with your parents to find you where you are in Ethiopia. I asked for information, and your parents refused to give me the address of where you're located in Ethiopia. So it took me three days to find you. And so I want to know if do you want to go back to America or do you want to stay in Ethiopia? Because if you stay in Ethiopia, you'll never go back. However, if you want to go, I will make the process for you to get back to the U.S. And that's when I said, yeah, absolutely. I want to go back because life is easier in the U.S. for a disabled person. And so although I love my people, my culture, I still wanted you know, to live in a land that made it livable for me. And he said to me, do you want to go back to America? And I started crying and I said, I want to go back, but I don't want to go back to my family. I don't want to go through that pain and suffering anymore. And he said, I promise you, Tizita, I can get you back to America, but I cannot um, help you with what happens once you arrive there. And so by the end of the year, he got me out of Ethiopia, even though my parents, my adopted parents gave them gave him hell trying to get me out of the country. So my understanding was I was going to go into a, a, maybe a different family or a, diff, a school, something, but I had no desire to return back to my family or live anywhere near them. The U.S. Embassy representative got Tiz out of Ethiopia by the end of that year. She was about 15 years old when she returned to America. Her adoptive mother told her adoptive father to go pick Tiz up. She didn't even want to see Tiz's face. Her adoptive father showed up in Ethiopia, signed a bevy of paperwork that had to be regenerated because her parents had intentionally destroyed papers that would have assisted her return. On the plane back to the United States, her adoptive father said, Tizita, I just want to let you know, if you see your mom and you see her upset, just know it's because she does not want you back. I just remember, like, the airplane was taking off from Ethiopia. We are just leaving, and I looked out the window, and there was just tears running down my face. Because I knew she didn't want me back. But to hear that, you know, like, oh, my gosh, I was, I was going from what little paradise I knew in Ethiopia. And not in material possessions, but in love and compassion, what little paradise I knew. I was leaving and going back into the fiery pits of hell that I had left several years back. And so I came and returned back to my family. Unbelievably, while Tiz was in Ethiopia, her adoptive parents adopted three more children, African-American kids. When the plane landed, their adopted mother was there with rage etched into her face for Tiz's defiance in returning. She stood there, seething with the siblings Tiz already knew, who were all grown up after six years, and the three new children. 
She thought they were her siblings' friends until they were introduced as her new siblings. Tiz was shocked. But then she was surprised that someone was missing. But then I also noticed my older sister was not there. And I will later discover that she was kicked out of the house at 16 years old. And she was being raised by our aunt in another state. So, and so she said to her, she actually met her at the airport when my older sister came to the U.S. She met her at the airport and said to her, find a place to live, turned around and walked out and left her destitute at the airport. But by God's grace, my aunt was there and my aunt took her in. This That's woman how sounds much horrible. neglect is rampant in our family. She will, she will leave you. She will leave you destitute. I mean, it was just, just, just petty things that my adopted mom would you know, just don't defy her. It's basically the rule of the house and you'll live happy. But, you know, when you're being tortured, you have to stand up for yourself. Otherwise, people walk all over you. By the time Tiz returned, the family had moved. They left the home she knew in Davis, California, for a farm out in the middle of nowhere, away from the city, away from people. But life wasn't any different. And what was it like so, there for you? What was life like in the house thereafter? It, life was not much different except with me. Um, once they moved to the farmland, I started witnessing abuse of the two new adopted black American sisters. They started getting tortured. In fact, worse than I was being tortured. I saw things like they were sleeping in the barn next to the horses. Mm. They would often eating dog and cat food and it and it just I, I became really triggered and I had enough I had enough um, I was not about to live in a house witnessing um, this abuse and turning a blind eye to it right mm -hmm. and so this is the time where I discovered something about myself like my complete hatred for injustice and my fearlessness and being the voice for the voiceless and defend defender of the weak so I remember coming alive. I was enraged by what I was seeing. So I'm emboldened. I remember requesting a phone number to Child Protective Services at the library and calling them to just stop all of this pain and suffering that was going on at our house. Wow, good for you. So what happens after you make this phone call? Without going into details, because this is um, a story that involves them, but basically what happened was they came, they took some of the kids out, uh, put them in foster care, and then one of them was um, basically split from her biological sister. So these are the two um, African-American sisters that were split, and one of them, she was shipped up off to Africa, basically to be tortured away from prying eyes, and the other one was set into foster care. And when I turned... 18, I was kicked out of the house because I was a menace to my adoptive mother. And according to her, I had broken up the family. She was wrong, obviously. The family was already broken. I I just exposed it for the lie that it was. Mm, that's and then right. during this time also, my older sister reached out to me and our relationship basically grew very strong. And to this day, I would say she's the best thing that ever happened to me. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. At 18 years old, Tizita was kicked out of her home. 
She had been living at home for three and a half years, but once she hit the legal age of 18, she was ejected from the family. She actually dropped me off um, at a, an apartment um, that the house belonged to my grandfather, and he had passed away. And so I rent his place, basically. Um, she just one day packed up and, you know, dropped me off and said, okay, you live here now and drove away. And that's a pattern of hers. You know, she never tells you what she's going to do. She just does things. Just like when I was sent back to Ethiopia, she just dropped me off at the airport and said, goodbye, turned around and walked away. Mm, mm, mm. And that is a very, that, that, that's her. That's what she does. She doesn't tell you anything. She just does things. And you just know it at the last moment. You just look around completely shocked, like what's going on. Yeah. This is really unbelievable. So how do you fend for yourself? You're, you have a disability. You live in a new place. It sounds like you're by yourself. Is that correct? Yes. Um, fortunately, I'm pretty independent. Mm -hmm. um, my disability is not severe for me to... Not, it's not severe enough for me to you know, be restricted or anything. I'm very independent. I'm very... Um, able to live on my own, yeah. Okay. Um, it's it just what angers me is the lack of life preparation that they failed to accomplish in a lot of our lives. That's what angers me because right now I'm 29 and I'm still getting my GED, my high school diploma, because my life was so chaotic and so messed up that, you know, you feel ashamed being 29 years old and you're still getting your high school diploma. At 29, your average human being is done with school, either buying a house, getting married, or doing something, right? Mm -hmm. And here you are still <laughs> doing 12th grade. Yeah. You know, um, K to 12, something that your parents should have prepared you, but because they m neglected you and didn't prepare you for life, you're having to trek the road on your own. And you didn't enjoy the privileges that most people have on their own. Yeah, I could see how that would be a huge source of anger and resentment. I mean, among other things that were done to you or not done for you. It's yeah, astonishing. But I'm, I'm yeah. so impressed, though, that you were like, basically, it feels like a thumb in the eye to them. Like, screw you. I'm, I'm going to make this work, right? Yeah. 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 And I've got no contact with them for the past six years. They're, they're so toxic just for my own sanity and for my own health. It was better that I separated myself so that I can just be free and not have to live and relive my past over and over again. Can you say more about that? Because it's, it's interesting to me that you retained contact with them at all. So this person kicks you out at 18 and says, you live here now, and they roll out. So what what contact did you maintain with the family before six years ago when you said, you know what, enough is enough? The, the contacts were very superficial. So it was just basic birthday celebrations that were very just immature, I guess you could say. Um, Christmas, Thanksgiving, just holiday things that I would see them for like an hour before she just 
wanted to get rid of me. You know, she would drop me off by, back on my apartment. And um, the constant refusal to apologize for the pain and suffering that she caused on all of us, always saying that we did it for your best. We were doing what God told us to do, um, using the name of, of Christ to abuse um, and to just, just be so cruel. Um, and I just thought, you know, toxic people, the only way you can heal yourself is just separating yourself. And so I learned a lot about narcissism, narcissistic people, um, psychopaths, and things like that. I just learned a lot about that. And the only way you can he start the healing journey is by separate, separating yourself. And so, and that's what I did. And I have the closest relationship right now with my um, older sister. Ever since I came back, she reached out to me. And we are very, very close. I've always said that if she had not reached out to me, I would have committed suicide a long time ago. Um, because there's so much other details that I haven't spoken about that happened in our family. And, and so just the surface level alone, you know, it was too much. And so she, my older sister, my older adopted sister has been basically my rock and just been my backbone. I mean, other than Jesus, of course, because mm -hmm. I'm still a Christian too. So, mm -hmm. yeah. My gosh. It's some, mm -hmm. one, I'm so thankful that you're here. Because I could see how you would have reached a breaking point. And it's always interesting to hear who the person was, what the moment was that saved somebody from, from doing the, the worst thing that possible to escape, right? Yeah. And for right. your sister to be that person, <laughs> it's so cute that she was like, I can't leave this country without my sister. I mean, that's just... Mm -hmm amazing and then t for her to seek you out after she felt like you were back here is incredible too and it all goes back to you two being in this orphanage together strangers uh who don't speak the same language but on this same crazy horrific journey together i told tiz it must have been hard for her sister in their early adoptive years to have traveled from ethiopia together only to be separated by a bathroom door for years. Tiz on the inside, her sister, wondering why she couldn't come out. It's beautiful to think that her sister cared so much about her that she pulled Tiz through, rescuing her from the boarding school and reconnecting with her even after she was kicked out of their home. Especially since we're not even biologically related. Yeah, you know? right, right. <laughs> yeah, wow. um, even... You know, unfortunately, I, I know she wouldn't mind if I say this because um, I spoke to her before I spoke to you, before I called you, and I think she'll give me permission to say this. But, you know, unfortunately, she was actually kidnapped, you know, from her parents, and she's not even technically an orphan. But hopefully without one day, that will be her sh story to share because I, I told her she should call you. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, cause there's other stories of my siblings, too, that I don't think it's my right to share, but, mm. you know, there's a lot of evil that happened in our family, and it's not good at all. And, you know, it was unfortunate that she was taken away, and she was she had the privilege, actually, of meeting her biological parents, especially her mom, three years before she passed away. And she wow. looked exactly like her. Oh, my gosh. I so hope yeah. that she'll tell me her story one day. That's incredible, and yeah. I, I would welcome it. But I want to ask you, so did you, 
at any point have this inkling of trying to find your biological parents? And, and what happened? I would love to find them, but I know that it's basically impossible because Ethiopia doesn't keep birth records. We don't have records and stuff like that that, that we do in America. Um, and also, I'm not emotionally ready to find them because I don't want to know the story of why I was given up because like I said I'm very sensitive very very sensitive and I'm not ready to hear the story and at the time right now I'm not very proud of my life and where I am so if they would need like financial help or something I will not be able to help them and I would just feel very ashamed to tell them where I am in my life at almost 30 years old um, I'm just not ready for that and I would love to meet them I mean if it comes out of the blue yes but I will not make active work to find them because I don't know I just I'm not ready right now I'll be honest with you you sound remarkably positive to me in terms of outlook despite your immediate sort of lack of pride for where you are I feel like you see a bright future despite what's the darkness of the past. And I could see how as you're starting to lay this foundation, as tardy as you are, as compared with other people, that you wouldn't want anything to set you back until you've got that foundation really stable. Then you might find that you have the inner strength to face what could potentially be very harsh truth to hear. Yeah. yeah. And I also know the consequences that comes with waiting longer, right? Yeah. It could be they're getting older. Yeah. The longer you wait, the older they get and they could die. And we're talking about people that live in a third world country here where the right. lifespan is very low. And so I am aware of that consequence. But at the same time, I'm not ready to hear. I don't want to hear that they were lied to like they were like my older sister was lied to just to share a little bit that her brother left her at a hospital to, sh to be taken care of. That's where she was kidnapped from the hospital. And her brother was told that she had died. And I don't want to know that story. I don't want that story to be mine. You know, I don't want to know. Maybe my parents were told, oh, she's going to America to get good health care and she'll come back. Because this is something that other Ethiopian kids have been told. I know these stories. I'm very much involved in the adoption community. And they were told. They're going there to get health care. They're going there to get education, and they will come back. And maybe my mom and dad were told that, and they said, okay, take care of her. She's sick. She's dying. And then I never came back. And it's like, no, I'm not ready to hear that story. Tezita talked a little bit about the loss of mirror image, the concept children can look into the faces of their parents and relatives and see an image of themselves. Tiz has always been told that she has a beautiful smile, but she doesn't think she'll ever know where that smile came from. She'll never know the stories of her childhood, who she sounds like when she laughs, or which relatives she looks like. Tiz is starting to get her life together, but she's constantly weighing her need to press forward and build herself up with the ticking clock of time as her parents and relatives age. Right now, Tizita is focused on her education. When we spoke, she was working on math, her most challenging subject. But she said 
When she first moved out at 18, there was no time for school. She was literally learning about how to live. She had to learn everything from how to buy food, soap, and shampoo, to how to cook, get around her community, and even where to get her wheelchair repaired. Those were all things Tiz had to learn without the guidance of caring parents. She described the experience as being like a person learning their ABCs in their 20s. But she's highly motivated, in many ways, self-taught. But no one accomplishes anything by themselves. I asked Tiz, who were her rocks of support besides her sister? Um, I have in the Ethiopian community. Mm-hmm. I have my church family. Mm-hmm. I have my adopted community. And, um, yeah, those are the main people. If I need help with anything and stuff like that, that will assist me. That's really excellent. And different, and different governmental organizations and stuff like that mm-hmm. that I was able to find on my own again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. May I ask, how do you feel about your home country? Will you go back there one day? To live? No. To visit, perhaps. To visit my friends and stuff that I knew at um, the, the boarding school. I see them through Facebook and I call them periodically over the phone. Um, but to permanently live there? No. I don't. It's not going to happen. Yeah, that was, I was wondering because I've spoken to a few Asian adoptees who've said that they feel very disenfranchised from any country, honestly, that they don't feel, you know, in Asia, they're not Asian enough. And here in America, they're Asian, not white, and, and, so there's no community that truly accepts these people that I've spoken with. And yeah. and they feel, you know, some of them have a similar story to your own of just not knowing anything about their origination. And they feel one of them, one of the ladies told me, you know, I don't, I, I feel like my mom rejected me in that country. That country doesn't accept me as a person that I am, you know, partially because I'm not Asian enough for them. So I don't really, I'm not, you know, I got no love for that country right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was just wondering if you had a similar uh, anger, animosity, alienation from your home country. I don't think so because I got to grow up there for the six and a half years. That was such impactful for me. It, it, it's interesting because this is something that... The Ethiopians are very kind people. They're very, very kind people and will accept you as one of their own. But periodically, you will hear them pointing out an area that you're not Ethiopian. So mm-hmm. they will, you know, they would joke with me saying, oh, that's the white side coming out. You know, I will do things and um, act in ways and speak in ways and behave in ways that they associate with not being Ethiopian. So they will tell me, you look Ethiopian, but you don't act like it. So, but it's not an alienation. It's more, we're just poking fun or we're Mm. joking around. But still, you know, for you, it's like, "Mm, they're right, you know, because you're not. Tiz said the feedback that she gets from the members of the Ethiopian community is simply them noticing that she's had influences from another culture. They don't mean any harm. She has plans for the future. Tiz is thinking about employment, starting a family, and what her past experiences mean in the context of her future. 
going forward for me, I just plan on getting a good job, perhaps get married, and um, relive my adoption process again because I've also thought about, you know, my family and, the, the, you know, how your adoption story revisits you when you have kids, right? Because mm-hmm. you look into your children's eyes and you tell them that they will not have to suffer like you have suffered, right? right? They will not have to lose their parents like you have. And you can finally, you can finally see your mirror image in your child that you didn't see in your parents. And so it's almost like it will never leave you because then your children will only have their father's side or their mother's side of the family that has been intact. But if you're an adopted person that has never found your parents or don't really have any connections with your biological parents, you know, they even will miss out. So to just answer your question, that's my plan. Find a good job, which I will, because there are organizations that will help me mm-hmm. and perhaps get married and then go on from there. That's fantastic. And then maybe hopefully find my biological parents, if God wills. <laughs> if not, then oh well. Oh my gosh. Well, I certainly wish you the best in everything that you, you do from this point going forward. I'm glad that you've rid yourself of the toxicity that was your adoptive family. And I'm glad you got your sister. I mean, she sounds incredible. And yeah. um, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you guys have one another to support each other. Because uh, this sounds like Thank this you. has just been awful. But Hopefully you're both, it sounds like, looking forward positively, and I I love that. There's a lot of resilience in the human spirit, and you exemplify that beyond anything I've heard in quite a while. So thank you for sharing your story, Tezita. That's interesting because when listening to the podcast, I feel like all of the adoptees have been very resilient. Do you notice that, or? I do. I do. Yeah. I would agree with you. Because even on your story, I mean, you're pretty resilient too. And all the other adoptees that I listen on your podcast and the other podcasts that I've found, it's like we're very strong people. You know, it's like we've gone, we've been refined through fire and come out the other end strong. It's like gold when it's refined by fire, you know, come out beautiful, shining jewels. (laughs) I think that. I've definitely noticed the resilience of adoptees. I think that your resilience is higher than most. And I think it's amazing. Thank you. Keep going. Do great things. Thank you. Thank you, Damon. I appreciate that. Of course. Thank you so much for what you're doing. It's been such a gift and such an encouragement to see, to hear everybody's voices and it's great because most podcasts out there are, are for, you know, adoptive parents and stuff like that. So it was really difficult finding voices for the adoptees. And mm-hmm. so I appreciate what you and others do. So thank you for that, Damon. Oh my gosh, great. my pleasure. I'm I'm so thankful yeah. for you to lend a different perspective to adoption. I think a lot of times people have, non-adoptees have a lot of misconceptions about what adoption can be. And this is why I want to do this, because there are a lot of hard truths out there that 
we as adoptees need to face and that non-adoptees need to be more aware of so that they don't go into adoption lightly thinking, you know, this is going to be awesome. This is building a family and it comes with its challenges. Every family has them. Nobody escapes them. And, uh, Mm -hmm. And there are ways to do it that are more correct than others. And this is why I want us all to tell our stories so that we can make sure that others feel supported and understood and it's educational. So I'm so glad that it has meant something to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care, Tezita. I'll talk to you another time. Okay. All the best to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's me. How do you explain to a child that they're being adopted when they come from another country where their native language doesn't have a word for adoption. It doesn't exist. Tezita was adopted at six years old with no explanation for what had happened to her and her family, nor what was happening next. She spent two years with her adopted family in solitary confinement. Then she was sent back to Ethiopia to attend boarding school with only the support of her teachers and friends. Along the way, she adopted a sister before the two were adopted together. Their bond is just amazing, and we all should be so lucky to have someone look out for us as Tiz's sister has for her. I respect that Tizita isn't ready to find her biological family at this moment. She has a daunting task ahead to even try to locate her people in Ethiopia, which has poorly recorded adoption records where records exist at all. If she ever did find them, her origin story might be hard to hear and accept, so I can see why she wants to build herself up before facing that challenge of a search. I wish Tizita and every adoptee or child like her that has endured abuse and neglect all the strength in the world. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Tizita's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow the show at facebook.com slash really or follow on Twitter at really. If the show is meaningful to you, you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com slash really. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And if you're interested, you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really, an adoptee memoir, on Amazon.com, on Kindle, or as an audiobook on Audible. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list. Mm-hmm.